Well, I am. And may I say, dear friends, it's uh, nice again to be back in Moody's Burn Church. And um, I'm so glad that my chauffeur did not forget this time to, <laughs> to pick me up. <laughs> I should not mention any name, but he's married actually to Margaret. <laughs> now, I want you to turn with me this evening to a number of different scriptures. Uh, the first one is in Romans chapter uh, 2, please. Romans chapter 2, and we're going to read just uh, uh, one verse, and it's verse 4. Romans chapter 2 and verse 4. Or despises thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. And then over to uh, Ephesians chapter 1. Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 1. And we'll read from verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who have blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he have chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. And then the last one is back to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 and verse 22. What if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he did afore prepared unto glory even us whom he have called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Uh, Dr. Sidlow Baxter, that great Bible expositor, tells a delightful story in his great book, Awake My Heart, of a young woman in the city of New York. And here's what she said. She said, yesterday I was worth $50, but today I'm worth millions. Yesterday I was worth $50, but today I'm worth millions. Well, of course, the explanation to that is very simple. She married a millionaire. And therefore, because she married a millionaire, they had a common purse. 
Yes, yesterday, $50. But uh, today, I'm worth millions of dollars. I, I wonder, dear friend, this evening, do we realize how rich we are as God's people? Do you remember what Paul said to the Corinthians? He says, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. And it is my purpose over the weeks that lie ahead in the Lord's will to bring to your attention the riches that we have as the Lord's people. And if you've been very observant in the Bible readings this evening, you will have noticed that they have a theme. In Romans chapter 2, Paul speaks of the riches of his goodness. And then in Ephesians 1, he speaks of the riches of his grace. And then in Romans chapter 9, he speaks of the riches of his glory. And that will be our theme in the weeks that lie ahead, to explore in a little measure the vast riches that we have as the redeemed of the Lord. You may not be a millionaire with regard to money or to possessions, but we shall see clearly from the word of God that we are richer than millionaires, richer than billionaires because of our inheritance that we have in the Lord Jesus. So that's the theme, dear friends. That's the menu over the weeks that are to come. We're going to have a look at these tremendous riches that God in his wonderful, wonderful grace wants to share with us, his redeemed people. And tonight we're going to kick off by looking at the first one here in Romans chapter 2. We're going to think of the riches of his goodness. Now this particular aspect of God's riches has this in common that they are not restricted to Christians. When God shares the riches of his goodness, it is to all mankind and to everybody, whether they are Christians or non-Christians. As Christians, we can appreciate where they're coming from. But sad to say, for the, for the unconverted, they are experiencing these riches, but they do not realize that they come from the hands of a good and bountiful God. They take these things for granted and they fail to realize that they are from God himself. Now let's have a look at this in a very simple twofold way. First of all, we're going to have a look at the, the physical 
and the temporal aspects of God's goodness. Uh, things that we are inclined so much even to take for granted as Christians. And yet they come from the hands of a good and bountiful God. Let me mention very quickly nine of them. Take for example the sun that shines. And sometimes it does shine in Scotland. <coughs> but have we realised that uh, this is part of of God's goodness the sun shining upon planet earth and then take for example the rain and of course we get plenty of rain in Scotland and sometimes we grumble and we complain oh no not rain again and yet this is part of the goodness of God there are certain parts of America and they've had not rain for about two or three years and they're suffering a drought. They would be desperate to have rain. We could send them some. They're desperate to have rain. Now let me show you this. Go to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, please. I want you to see this. Matthew chapter 5. You will, of course, know that Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the great sermon of our Lord Jesus on the mountaintop. And my, what a sermon it is. Matthew chapter 5, and this is part of his great uh, sermon. Uh, look at verse 44, Matthew 5. Jesus speaking. But I say unto you, love your enemies... Bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. Now here's the part. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. Now isn't that very interesting? The sun doesn't just shine on Christians. It shines on the unsaved. It just doesn't rain on the godly. It also rains on the ungodly. But you see, the unsaved, they just accept that part of nature. But the Lord said, God makes his sun to shine on the just and on the just. Sentence rain on the godly and on the ungodly. Sun to shine, rain, and then food. Did you starve today? Of course you didn't. You've had your breakfast, you've had your lunch, you've had your tea, you'll go home tonight and uh, you probably have your supper. Food. What a blessing that is. To think there are many in the world today. They don't have that. But you see, we are experiencing part of the riches of his goodness in the food that we eat. And then, of course, take clothing. You're all nicely dressed this evening. That's wonderful. I'm not speaking to naked people. You're clothed and even our clothes are part of the goodness of God. 
And then, of course, uh, what about health? We do enjoy, do we not, a measure of health and strength? Of course, we've got our aches and pains as we get older. Of course we do. That's part of growing old, wear and tear of the body. And yet, uh, we should thank God for that measure of health that we enjoy. And then, what about soundness of mind? We're not in in an asylum tonight. We've got soundness of mind. We can reason and we can think in a rational way. That's part of the goodness of God. Soundness of mind. And then, what about eyesight? Now, I know, of course, as we get older, we've got to go to the optician for the old glasses. We're not seeing as good as we used to see, but uh, we've still got uh, eyesight. And then what about hearing? What a blessing it is to, to hear. People speaking, the birds singing, music and so forth. In a few weeks' time, I'll be speaking uh, in a meeting in Motherwell. And uh, to partially blind people, some are actually blind, some are deaf, and uh, they don't seem to enjoy what we enjoy this evening, a measure of these goodnesses. And then what about liberty? No soldiers outside Moody's Burn this evening stop you from coming in to enjoy the fellowship of God's people. Liberty. Long may it continue in our land. Liberty to come and to have fellowship of God's people. Liberty to to preach the word of God and to declare the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus. Liberty. And then, to summarize this with regard to these physical temporal blessings, here's what Paul said when he was preaching on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17. Now, on this occasion, he's not speaking to the Jews. He's speaking to what we would call today the eggheads. Ever watch that program on television, The Eggheads? I watch it every night. I think it's wonderful. It just shows me how much I don't know. The, The eggheads... And they were the people that Paul was speaking to on Mars Hill. They were the intelligentsia. They were the philosophers, like the Epicureans and the Stoics. They were there. And they were amazed at what Paul was speaking about. This new doctrine of Jesus and the resurrection. They've never heard that before. Because the Athenians... They had one obsession in life, one obsession in life, uh, to hear something new, or to tell something new. And when Paul came along, they said, well, we'll have to have this chap uh, in Mars Hill. And they invited him along, and he uh, spoke to them on their level. You see, I believe, dear friends, that if Paul was here today, he could have been a university professor. What a logical mind the Apostle Paul had. And there he is, and he's speaking to these eggheads, these intelligentsia, these philosophers. And he, he, say, he reminds them that God created the world. And then he says these words. He says, 
in him, that is in God, we live and move and have our being. What a statement. In God we live and we move and we have our being. That's how dependent we are upon the riches of his goodness to live and to move. And then do you remember what Daniel said to that proud Belshazzar who took the vessels that were brought from Jerusalem to Babylon. He took them out and drinking from those vessels in the great feast. And then you know he saw the handwriting on the wall and he's terrified. In fact he's shaking, he's trembling. And all the enchanters, all the magicians, they couldn't give the interpretation of what these, uh, these names meant, the writing on the wall. And Daniel was brought in. And of course Daniel gave to him, proud Belshazzar, the interpretation of the words. And then he reminded Belshazzar of this. He says, the God in whom, in whose hand your breath is, you have not glorified. What a statement. The God in whose hand your breath is, you have not glorified. Now, isn't that humbling? The very next breath you're going to take is in God's hands. That is how much we are dependent upon the riches of his goodness. Sun to shine, rain, food, clothing, health, soundness of mind, eyesight, hearing, liberty. And then in him we live and move and have our being. And in his hand is our breath. There is the physical, temporal aspects of the riches of his goodness. And every day, every day from morning to night, we are experiencing, we are receiving the riches of the goodness of God. Do we ever take time to, to thank the Lord for his goodness? I trust we do. Because they come from the hand of a bountiful and a good God. But then we turn to the spiritual aspect of God's riches, of his goodness. And uh, you must realize that when you come to the letter to the Romans, it is the most systematized of all Paul's letters. Because Paul had a very logical mind. And you can see his mind working in the epistle to the Romans. It's a very logical letter. And he starts in Romans chapter 1. And he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now after he says that, he then says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And we almost say, wait a minute Paul, wait a minute. You've just told us you're not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. 
But why introduce the wrath of God in the next verse? You see, dear friends, we shall never appreciate the gospel of our Lord Jesus unless we say it in its entirety. Why do we need the gospel? Why do we need saved? Why do we need justified? And what Paul's doing is this. He's going to lay the foundation. And then he's going to build the superstructure on the foundation. And he's going to show to these Romans that he's never, that he's never seen. He hopes to visit them very soon. And he's sending them an, a, a, a specimen of the gospel he's going to preach when he gets there. And he's going to show them, first of all, that the Gentiles are sinners in the sight of God. And you have that in chapter 1. He's speaking of the people of the first century AD, the heathen around him. They didn't have the, the, the Jewish law, the Torah, as the Jews had. But they had two things that would have convinced them of the reality of God. First of all, they could see creation. And that's what Paul reminds them of. They could see creation. And where you've got creation, you've got a creator. And when you've got an effect, you've got to have a cause. And Paul says, it is God who has created this great universe. You could say it it's as, clear, as clear as anything. The heavens declare the glory of God. But the second thing is conscience. Creation around them, and then conscience within them. That would tell them that there is a God. And it's very sad, dear friends, is it not? In spite of the evidence of creation, and in spite of their testimony of their own conscience, they rejected God. And three times, Paul says, God gave them up. God gave them up. As if to say, okay, you want to live your own lives? Go ahead. And they were experiencing the outworking of sin in their lives. For whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. So in chapter 1, he shows how the Gentiles are sinners. They need the gospel. Ah, but in chapter 2, he's going to turn his attention to the Jews. Now they were different. They had the Torah. They had the commandments. They had the law. And uh, you see these Jews. They were looking down upon these Gentiles. But sometimes they were doing the very same things themselves. So in chapter 2. He's going to show that the Jews. With all their privileges. With all their advantages. They also are sinners. In the sight of God. And then he introduces in chapter 2. He says, you are despising the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Do you see the connection? They were experiencing the goodness of God, but it wasn't leading them to repentance as it should have. Now have a look at this dear friends. The riches of his goodness. Spiritually. 
And we can look at this in four ways. First of all, there was the convicting of our sins. Why are we sitting here in this church this evening? Why are you not in the public house? Why are you not elsewhere? I'll tell you why. There was a time in your life, a time in my life, in which God came along and he convicted you of your sins. He showed you that you were a sinner in the sight of God. And believe you me, that wasn't very pleasant when God does that. Oh yes, many times we've heard preachers speak, but that particular occasion, that meeting, God came and he convicted you, convicted me of our sins. As Paul says in chapter 3, he brings the Jew and the Gentile together and he says, he says there's no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. And we realize that we're not. I'm a sinner. God convicted us of our sins. Secondly, he showed to us our need of a saviour and this follows from the first point when God convicts you of your sins then how am I going to get rid of my sins how can I be saved and then God showed to us our need of a saviour now let me ask you a question why are many of our churches today half empty why do people not come to church where there may be a multiplicity of different reasons they would give, but basically the reason would be this. They see no need of a saviour. They're getting on fine. They may have a good job. They have a nice family, nice car, plenty of possessions. No need. Why are we here the night? Well, God convicted us of our sins, but then he showed to us our need of a saviour. Do you remember that uh, in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas in prison, and at midnight, they're not grumbling, they're not complaining, they're not mourning. Oh no, it says at midnight, they're singing and praying unto God. And the prisoners heard them. What a testimony that was for Paul and Silas. What a testimony. They're singing, even though they've been beaten before being cast into prison. And the jailer put them in stocks. Who cares about preachers? But at midnight, there's a mighty earthquake. And it shook the prison. And the doors flung open and uh, every man's bonds were loosed uh, and the poor jailer, he wakes up uh, and he's terror stricken. He sees, the, he sees the doors open and he realizes if the prisoners are, are gone, if they've escaped, uh, it means one thing for him, he's got to die. That's the penalty. And it says he rushed in, trembling, trembling. And he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And then came the answer, believe on the Lord Jesus, and thou shalt be saved. 
What a change. One moment he's a hard man, a hard man. He's a, he's a, he's a jailer. Throws these prisoners into the prison. And then God shows to him his need of a saviour. What must I do to be saved? I'm a sinner. Do you remember the time in your life in which you cried, What must I do to be saved? Because you realize your need of a saviour to deal with your sin problem and my sin problem. And then thirdly, not just convicting us, not just showing us our need of a saviour, but this is important, drawing us, drawing us to the Lord Jesus. Because the Lord said in John chapter 4, no man can come to me except the Father which is in heaven draws him. And we can look back upon a time in our lives. We heard the gospel. We were convicted of our sins. We realized the need of a savior. And then we felt the drawing power of the Lord. Drawing us to the place called Calvary. And what a lovely experience that was. Because didn't Jesus say, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. And then, of course, fourthly, we've, we got wonderfully and gloriously saved. Now, when you come to look at this word saved, the Bible approaches it in three ways. It may seem strange to us, but this is how the Bible approaches it. We are saved. We are being saved. And we shall ultimately be saved. It's in three stages. We have been saved, but we're being saved, and then we shall ultimately be saved. The moment of our conversion, we were saved. Tis done, the great transaction's done. But then we are being saved from day to day, from week to week, from month to month. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I remember speaking to a dear Roman Catholic woman on one occasion. Now she wasn't a nominal Roman Catholic, oh no, she was a devout Roman Catholic. Went to the confession, went to the chapel and all that sort of thing. And you know, that they were the very words she said to me. She says, Mr. Shaw, the Bible says, work out your own salvation. Now, having studied Roman Catholic theology, I knew where she was coming from. Trying to be saved by your works, your good works. Go to the chapel, go to the confession, and so forth. And I said to her very graciously, I said, well, now, would you tell me the next verse? You've given, you've given part of a verse, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And that's true. Now, would you give me the next verse? Ah, oh, but she couldn't. And I had to do it for her. Because the next verse says, For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And I said, My dear, you can only work out that which God has worked in you. You want to see her face? She says, Is that right? I never saw that before. 
You see, she took a part of the verse of scripture to suit her theology. But that's not what Paul means. Because Paul is getting that, yes, God has saved you, Philippian believers. Now, you've got to work it out from day to day with fear and trembling. You've got to work out that which God has worked in your life. And then, of course, we shall ultimately be saved. And what a day that's going to be. Think of it. Glorified bodies and resurrection if we die before the Lord comes. But also every trace of the old Adamic nature will be taken completely from us. And we shall be perfect not only in body but in spirit. In soul, in spirit. Because the Bible speaks of the spirits of just men made perfect. Think of it. Never thinking an evil thought. Never having an evil intention. A nature that is pure and holy. Like God's. You see the sad thing is dear friends. For many of God's people. They don't know what they've been saved for. They know what they've been saved from. Oh yes, a lost eternity, that's wonderful, but that's negative. Tell me, dear Christian, do you know what you've been saved for? Ah, that's the question. Well, here's how Paul puts it. Here's the reason why you've been saved. And here's the ultimate realization of your salvation, that when God is finished with you, you shall be conformed to the image of his beloved son. What a prospect. What a hope. What a desire that one day I'm going to be a replica and you're going to be a replica of the Lord Jesus. And dear friend, I have to confess in many, many ways, I'm so unlike the Savior. And I'm sure you would confess the very same. But one day I'm going to be like him. I'm going to be changed into his image. I'm going to be conformed to him. What a glorious hope that is. Now that is the ultimate of our salvation. Not just saved from a lost eternity. That's negative. But to be conformed to the image of his beloved son. I often think of what John says in 1 John chapter 3. And when John wrote this, he's an old man in his, uh, in his 90s. He's the only one of the 12 that didn't suffer martyrdom. The rest were all martyrs. They all were killed. But John didn't suffer as a martyr. He died in old age. He was exiled, of course, to the Elipotmus uh, by the Roman authority. But he died not as a martyr. And when he takes his pen in 1 John chapter 3, he says these words. He says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. We've never seen him as he was. But we shall see him as he is. And the moment we see him, that's the moment of our transformation. 
when we see him, we shall be like him. And I love what Paul says to the little church at Philippi. He says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perfect it unto the day of Jesus Christ. When God commences a work, he doesn't leave it half done. He shall bring that work to completion. And there's no power on earth, and there's no power in hell can defeat the purpose of God. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. Dear child of God, do you realize God sees you and me glorified? Oh, but you say, Stanley, wait a minute, wait a minute, sir. I don't feel glorified. I will not talk about your feelings, friends. This is the purpose of God. <laughs> this is the plan of God. Whom he justified, then he also glorified. Now, if you were writing that, uh, you would put it this way. Whom he justified, then he shall glorify. You would put it in the, in the future tense. He shall glorify. But you Greek students here in Moody's Burn, look it up in your Greek New Testament when you go home. Paul doesn't use the future tense. He uses the past tense. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. Because God lives the eternal now. We have to wait. But God doesn't know. He sees us already glorified in his beloved Son. Oh, the riches of his goodness. Convicting us of our sins. Showing to us our need of a saviour, drawing us to the saviour, and then saving us. And saving us, and then ultimately saving us completely, body, soul, and spirit. And presenting us faultless before his presence with exceeding joy. And he's going to display to the angels, and the archangels, and the cherubim, and the seraphim, and he's going to say, look at them, look at them. These are the people that my son bled for and died for. These are my people. And they are replicas of my beloved son. Now, you glad you came tonight? You heard the riches of his goodness. You are a millionaire this evening. You might not have a big fat bank book. Of course you might have. I don't know. I could be speaking to millionaires this evening. Maybe Graham's one, I don't know. Maybe even Sandy's one. I don't know, you see. But uh, you mightn't have much in the bank. But thank God this evening, you are enjoying the riches of his goodness. Extend it to all mankind. They don't see it. They don't appreciate it. But we want to see beyond the gifts to the giver. We want to see beyond the blessings to the blesser. And we want to praise God from whom all blessings flow. Thank God this evening for the riches of his goodness.